This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street. From race to adventure, custom to naked, look no further than Renthal Street for handlebars, clip-ons, chains, and sprockets. Okay, everybody, welcome to the latest show of the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street and also KTM. KTM, Dave, I'm looking at you because um, you're the most favorite motorcyclist among us. Uh, out with a new 1290 Super Duke Double R, uh, the Beast. Um, I've ridden it. It's a fantastic bike. I mean, it's uh, it looks menacing, but you can actually just you know trot around town on it. You know, do all sorts of kind of riding. I've been on track on it with Portimao. Uh, fantastic motorcycle. I know you're a BMW lover, a GS stalwart, but uh, I do recommend giving the Super Duke a, a go one day if you get the chance. I'd love to have a go on a KTM. I think they're lovely bikes. And it's the Super Duke Double R to the majority of our listeners, but to the listeners in Ireland, it's the Double Or. Or, or, uh, you know, if you're in a canoe and you're just looking for some means to get anywhere, you just get your oars out. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, my name's Adam Wheeler. As I'm sure regular listeners of the podcast know, I'm joined by a fantastic Mr. David Emmett, who's been busy on motormatters.com all weekend and who have his roundup content coming out during the week. After Kota was sitting in your Airbnb, Dave, uh, Monday morning after the race, round three of 2023, um, we've got Mr. Neil Morrison on the other side of the table. Uh, we're lucky, aren't we, to be in the presence of such a, a venerable expert of MotoGP. We are indeed, and such a tall person as well. We're in exactly the same um, uh, Airbnb as we are last year. It's a nice one, although cockroaches have been pretty ever-present in the kitchen, which is uh, slightly worrying. One run up my leg. Dave actually found a cockroach in his pants when he was doing the dishes the other day. So, um, yeah, the glamour of MotoGP. Uh, this might be a slightly shorter podcast than we planned then, <laughs> as we're sitting in your kitchen right now. Um, Dave, on the subject of KTM, just quickly before we really get into the show, because we have a lot to talk about um, in this particular episode, we've got our moments, our winners and losers, of course, from the uh, Red Bull Grand Prix of the Americas, our talking points. We have a fantastic exclusive section with Lynn Jarvis, where you asked him all sorts of juicy questions, not only about Fabio Quartararo's first podium of the season, but also some future direction from Yamaha some of the questions we really have about what is now the marginal presence on the MotoGP grid as well as some of your questions so thanks for sending in those comments and posers we'll try to give some insight or some answers to those but just quickly Dave we had a, a round table talk with um, Tomek Young from Exxon Mobile who are now supplying the engine oil and um, gasoline to the KTM Rebel KTM factory racing team this year it was particularly kind of illuminating wasn't it um, or illustrative of how you know this component of race teams material is vital towards their race success. Yeah, I mean, the roundtable was organised uh, as uh, a discussion of, you know, mainly the e-fuels, zero carbon racing fuels. We are basically going to, um, uh, for 40% renewable fuel next year and 100% in 2027. But in the end, what I came away from that is like the uh, the e-fuel is the least interesting part. The, the more interesting part was the amazing things that they've been able to do with uh, lubrication, you know, by um, uh, tailoring mo at the molecular level these components of an oil down uh, to uh, produce the characteristic that they want, being able to run the engine hot or being able to uh, use a smaller um, uh, radiator so that they can uh, go faster, um, uh, being, you know, make the engine last. It, it, I mean, it, it was fascinating. I found it very, really, very, very interesting indeed. Uh, Neil, you and I are both in this round table as well. And there was a couple of political kind of um, connotations, things to discuss about. But I think 
as we left, we both remarked how much Dave was just reveling in the own in his own kind of fat of technical detail. And in fact, the next morning when I walked past the the Red Bull Casey in hospitality, there he was um, grilling Tom Egg even further over some technical detail. So that's either going to be a Maybe not a podcast, but I'm sure an article we'll find on motomatters.com, right? Yeah, I, yeah, I don't even think it's going to be an article. It's just there were so many little bits and bobs that make it just a fascinating background and give you a real insight into, for example, you know how they've uh, how the direction KTM are going and and what they're what they're trying to achieve. Generally, just like how how engines work. Anyway, enough molecules. Uh, <laughs> Neil, tell us a bit about your moment from the Grand Prix. I think my moment has to be the the Moto Two race, the conclusion of the Moto Two race that we had yesterday. Um, a thrilling battle between uh, Pedro Acosta and Tony Arbolino. It was really high stakes, even though it was only the third race of the season. It had the feel of being quite an important one, just because I feel these guys are probably the two favourites for the title this year, and we're probably going to see this battle quite frequently throughout two thousand and twenty three. So, whoever got the first uh, victory, I felt was going to be quite important in terms of um, belief and morale and momentum um, and Tony Arbolino rode a, a great race led the majority of it uh, Pedro was putting them under some severe pressure right the way through um, I think made one small mistake at turn one but Pedro made a mistake soon after that allowed, to, allowed Tony Park through um, but Acosta was just just a little better going into turn 12 in the final lap I think he'd been keeping his powder dry in there uh, up until that point in the race um, and yeah I had a couple of massive front end moments after he made the, the decisive overtake in the final sector um, just held on but yeah I thought it was a, a brilliant race and always an extra special pleasure when you see the two top guys in the championship going head to head and I feel that's what we saw. Yeah, I mean, it also illustrates the way that I mean, this track, the, the circuit of the Americas is not really known for great racing but sometimes it can produce great racing because it's such an incredibly physically demanding track. One of the things that you can do, if you can escape, then you can stay away. If you can't escape, uh, if you're stuck with someone, then what happens is you just sit there all race long, uh, you know, watching each other, looking for weaknesses, all the rest, uh, and wait for the last couple of laps. And, you know, like it, the, the race sort of exploded in the last couple of laps, and it's fantastic. I think it was 1.4 seconds at the finish line. It seemed like it should have been a bit tighter, but it was less than 1. that. 0.1. Okay, there you go. Horrendously inaccurate. <laughs> um, rapid fire question before we move on. Regardless of what happens in the title, can these two riders stay in Moto2 another year? Um, uh, Acosta, no, absolutely not. One Arbolino. Uh, Arbolino. The problem that Arbolino has got, I mean, like Acosta is clearly a generational talent. You know, he's just too good. Um, he, the, the, what he did in Moto Three proved that he was just outstanding. What he's doing in Moto Moto Two, I think he got overshadowed a bit last year with all the injuries that he was carrying for most of the season. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's clearly the, he's clearly. Well, he's arguably the best rider in the class, and there's a few that he's got to do. Uh, he's got to beat. Tony Arbolino has been in the class a few, a couple of years longer, I think, um, uh, taking it, taking a bit longer. Arbolino is outstanding, but you know, is he more outstanding than some of the guys uh, in the class? I think there's a chance that um, you know, there's one or two guys currently underperforming in MotoGP that um, you think that could be a seat that Arbolino takes next year. Someone like Fabio Di Gian Antonio hasn't really shown enough to um, to say that he deserves that Grissini Ducati ride. 
Um, we know Tony's manager, Carlo Pernet, has close association, close links with Ducati. Um, you know, I'm sure he's eyeing up that seat. Um, but yeah, I feel that Acosta, it's almost like get him to MotoGP as soon as possible because it's clear that he's he's already at the top of his game in Moto2 now. Arbolino, um, you know, assuming Acosta wins the championship this year, if he doesn't move up, and it's no disaster because he'll have a chance to win it again next year. But yeah, I feel the two guys that will probably see MotoGP in 2024. Yeah, also, I went to the um, Moto2 press conference. I mean, I don't go to very many of this, the Moto2 press conferences. So you I don't graced speak. it with your presence. I did grace it with my presence because uh, Neil asked me to go. And uh, it was interesting seeing the, the transformation. You, most of the time I see... Uh, Acosta, the same as I see, uh, um, the same as a lot of fans see him. You see him on TV. Uh, you know, you'll occasionally walk past him, but actually seeing him, uh, in my mind, he was still like a gangly youth. He looks really mature, really grown, really. Um, uh, he has a real presence now. He's got, he's got, you know, he's got the presence, the kind of thing that you need to uh, be to go to the next level we've been to portugal we've been to argentina we've just finished in the us uh, next next up is Jerez, and you'd imagine that'll be the time when some meetings will start happening with agents managers representatives and city season will start to crank up a little bit more um, maybe more so than it has been doing you know so far this year dave i have it to you for your moment from the grand prix um, my moment for the grand prix was uh, jack miller's crash we didn't see very much of it um <clears throat> and it was Really, it was just a tiny, tiny mistake. He referred to it as a, uh, a bee's reproductive organ, um, where was the difference between staying on, falling off. Uh, I think it's illustrative of why there were so many crashes this uh, the, 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 this week. We'll come to uh, another slightly more important crash later on, per, perhaps. But Miller was in fantastic form. He he really believed that it, you know that a win was on the cards. He was he was coming forward. He wasn't pushing. He wasn't over the limit. That's no. what he said. No, well, the, 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 this is exactly it. They're, they're on the limit, but the. The, uh, the track, what happened was the, the, the wind turned to, to the opposite direction. It was a, a, a lot cooler um, than it was on Saturday. And so the whole feel of everything was just a little bit different. And so you couldn't get, you could go right up to the limit, but as soon as you were sort of anywhere near it, you got very little feedback from the thing letting go. And um, he was very interesting talking uh, talking afterwards. Uh, about uh, about the crash but it, it was absolutely sort of illustrative of the kind of crash that we saw throughout the entire weekend we're 10 minutes into the podcast we still haven't mentioned the winner alex rins and um, we're not doing him a disservice and we will get around to him but for me my moment as you kind of referred to dave was peko bagnaya's crash because after his pace and um, his competitiveness through the sprint when he hit the front, I think for the main Grand Prix, we were all sitting there thinking, well, that's it. The race is done. Um, as we've mentioned before, at Kota, it hasn't seen the best or the closest races, just purely down to the nature of the track. 20 corners, the second longest on the calendar, like we've said. And, you know, there have been a, quite a few incidents. I mean, Miguel Oliveira had a nasty crash down into turn two through the weekend. Uh, Dave, you and I were both at Alex Marcus's debrief on Sunday where he said that the strong wind yesterday uh, really kind of changed the orientation for the riders in terms of their braking, their lean angles, everything they would learn about the track up until that point. And the fact that Bagnaya, for the second Grand Prix in a row, has made a mistake completely out of the blue. I mean, there were no warnings, no signs that he was uh, straining at the leash or he was, you know, asking too much of the Desmosedici. 
um, you know, it has to lead to questions about his his mentality or his approach. These were the kind of mistakes that we were seeing last year that he worked on during the summer um, with the help of some alcoholic beverages or not, and then came back and completely eradicated to, to you know, for a, you know, a phenomenal championship comeback. But now this has happened again. I think there's a, probably a couple of alarm bells and maybe some more work that needs to be done either in near Tawulio or VR46 or somewhere. I mean... Yeah, it's it's kind of concerning, I guess, if you're uh, if you're Ducati bosses or if you're Peko Bagnaia. It's probably good for the championship um, because had Peko stayed on in Argentina and, and Austin, I think he would already be looking as the, the kind of odds-on favorite to run away and dominate the series. But as a result of the two crashes, it's it's completely wide open. But yeah, five crashes he had last year. Um, you think back to 2021. And, uh, you know, there were one or two moments in that season when he cracked under the pressure as well. Um, yeah, and, and two crashes in a row now. I mean, this is becoming, it's not just a, it's not just a kind of a, a spell in a season where he's having some issues um, managing the thing out front. Um, you know, this is something that's been quite apparent for maybe three or four MotoGP seasons now. Um, it's, um, it, it's strange because he's such a, a rider of contrast. We saw him many, many occasions last year. I don't think he won one of his races, one of his seven races, by uh, more than a second. Um, the majority of those, he was under the most intense pressure up until the checkered flag, and he managed to keep his head, to hold on. You look at what he did at Sepang last year. I mean, that was such a high-stakes race, and he managed to come out on top. But it's a, it's a puzzling one that um, when... I know Alex Rins was chasing him from behind, was not letting him get away. Um, there was, a, I think, a, an increase in his lead by about two-tenths of a second from the, the previous lap just before he crashed. So, you know, he was trying to go and break Rins at that, at that particular moment. But, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's almost like we're, we're back to square one with uh, with Peko. Yeah, I mean, turn two is, is tricky. Also, I think... It, especially at that corner, the wind was a factor because the wind, um, it had been coming uh, from the other side. So from the inside of the, co of the corner for most of the weekend. And that means it's sort of pushing you wide and you get used to the feeling of where you're supposed to tip the bike in and the kind of force that you're going to need. Um, the wind had turned around and so it was pushing you into the corner, which should help you through the corner. Um, but again, you have this, idea in your head of the kind of the, the 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 physical motion you need to do to get the thing to hustle the thing through the corner um and uh it, he he must have just got it wrong but again it was all so the, the the difference was all so small it was it was such a small um as jack miller said you know like a a, a bees what's it was was the difference between staying off and falling off and so if you're pushing just a little bit too hard that you don't even realize it um that it, it just goes but I, I think it's a very good it is a very good point that that neil made that when you've got someone behind you it concentrates the mind you're having to focus your entire being on everything and if you are feeling comfortable uh, at the front then you can then maybe you're not you're you know 99.99 percent concentrated and not 100 percent concentrated and, that, and that's the difference the the other thing that that um 
Peko said was he had complete confidence in bike. He said, this is easily the best bike on the grid. It's the best bike he's ever ridden. He feels fantastic. He believes he can do absolutely everything with it. And sometimes um, you find out that you can't actually do everything with it. It gives you too much confidence. Yeah, and it was an interesting point that he made afterwards that um, I guess he was alluding to the, the bike's aerodynamics and the fact that it seems so planted when he pitches it into a kind of fast corner like turn two, um, all the downforce that's at play there. Um, he said that you, it gives you a great deal of confidence and you sort of can push like you want to, um, but it sort of deprives you of a little bit of that feeling, a little bit of the feedback of the, the kind of the movements and the vibrations going on underneath you. It just feels like it's completely planted. And he was saying it would almost be beneficial for him to take a little bit of that away, even if it cost him one or two tenths of a second per lap. So he could have a bit more feeling, a bit more warning almost. It seems bizarre to want to sacrifice stability for that. You know, you think more stability would heighten the feeling. Yeah, but I mean, uh, it, it's stability versus feel. Uh, basically, the more stable it is, the less feel you have. I, um, uh, I'm, I'm going to sound like a complete idiot now because... Um, oh, we're only 20 minutes in, Dave. So, right. so I'm, a, I'm a, a bit late. Um, really, Behind schedule. <laughs> Um, one of the things that I mean like as I'm sure uh, most listeners know I ride a BMW GS and have for a long time with a telelever front end one of the things about the telelever front end is it gives you an enormous amount of confidence in the front end but not very much um, not very much feed not feedback not very much feeling I mean I really feel that I can just fling the thing into the corner and it's going to be fine the only times that I've I mean there have been occasions where I've sort of you know flung the thing into a corner and there's been a little bit of sand or something on the road, and then the front just goes whoosh, and you go, oh, that was um, uh, interesting. Um, uh, but it sort of like comes back straight away. Now, obviously, I'm not quite going as fast as Pekka Ben Yaya, but I, I, I can sort of understand that. Just You just have absolute belief and confidence in the feel of the bike, and because you've got belief and confidence in the feeling of the bike, uh, you think you could, you think you can do no wrong, uh, and so you keep on going. One sort of tiny little detail is it's interesting that, that on the factory bike, so Oilins had these new uh, long travel shocks. They've, they've got a little bit more uh, suspension, and the factory Ducati riders have not used. They tested them, and they're not using them. They're using basically like last year's shocks. Uh, uh, sorry, not shocks for them, uh, front forks. Um, whereas the other, the, the the all the other all the other Ducatis, there's a mixture all up and down the 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 the, the grid of people using Olins. You know, some people are using, some people aren't. Um, and you sort of maybe wonder, maybe there would be a little bit more feedback or feel from from these new uh, forks if they were to give them a try. Do you have to change your elbow guards often, Dave, when you're out for a ride? In GS? <laughs> um, well, yeah, you know, I do. I do tend to get through them, but that's mostly from uh, falling over when I'm parked outside of hotels. And Neil, just to wrap up the the, the Bagnaya bungle. Um, he's eleven points down in the championship. He's won two of the sprints so far this season. So it's you know. He's getting something out of the Grand Prix, at least. Anyways, you know that Saturday form, and also I think it's creating uh, this air that when Bangdaya is focused, when he's on the job, then he's going to be unbeatable. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Oh, you don't agree? No. Well, yeah. I mean, like the second half of last year, he was almost unbeatable. You could say for sure, but 
I mean, this is something, as I said before, where it's it's not just a kind of temporary mid-season spell where he's kind of crashing out. This is something that's been evident over the last couple of years. And I guess this this must give great hope to other men who really have thoughts that they can win the championship this year. Because I think during preseason, after the first round of the season, we were all unanimous in our verdict that Peko just looked so confident. He was riding with the kind of air of confidence that comes with winning the championship, comes with having the best bike in the grid, comes with having a flawless preseason. And now you're looking at a guy that has very, very, very real defect that, um, you know, other men must be looking and thinking we can exploit that if we get in his face a bit, like Ringe was doing. Um, yeah, but, you know, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag, like, maybe he'll hold on but there is a chance that he could make a mistake he's not got that kind of air of invincibility when he's riding at his peak that you know other guys other it's champions not, have not in the past or you know no. even marquez in his pomp i mean not, not 19 marquez by any you know stretch of the imagination yet no i mean like it, it it's like in theory if you look at everything he should be unbeatable uh, but there's an engineering joke about in theory it should work in practice um that's the way it is with that's very much the way it is with Banya you know uh, he, he looks unbeatable but he keeps on managing to find a way to not be unbeatable maybe we should um ask Peko to to come and ask you about your GS experience Dave. yeah I'll, I'll give you give you a few pointers get a challenge I think I'll be up for it it'll be a good photograph well, it would be a good photograph until I end up in the hospital. <laughs> We'd come and visit you, Dave, you can, as long as you can hold a microphone. Uh, there's been 10 Grand Prix um, at Cotto, guys, and there's only been three winners. You know, we've had Mark Marquez last year, and A.F. Estianini giving you know, Ducati their first win. Um, Alex Rins, um, you know, one of those riders now on two brands. Neil, correct me here, but, you know, there are not many riders on the grid currently that have won MotoGP races with two brands. Um, so Rins, you know, he's making milestones probably when really we didn't expect it. Yeah, no, he really is. Um, I mean, it was uh, slightly fortuitous, you could say. You could say this victory did land in his lap to a certain extent. But then you could also say that he was the guy that was uh, really making Banyaya work in the uh, early laps. I mean, it was a, a super weekend. It wasn't just like a, a performance out of the blue. He was strong right the way through practice, qualified second, was second in the sprint. And you wonder if something similar might have happened in the sprint had he not ran off track at turn 12, I think after three, maybe four laps. And that essentially gave Banyai enough um, advantage to sort of build up a substantial lead and then he could just cruise from there. Um, but um, uh, I sort of loved Rinz's aggression from the off. You could really tell that his MO was to get in Banyai's face and to try and make his life, his life as difficult as possible. He made a couple of attempts at overtakes on the first lap. Um, and, you know, the gap was never really getting beyond, um, I think, just it just edged above half a second when Banyai did crash. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, I know we could say that uh, Rins is a, a circuit specialist at Kota. Uh, he obviously is. He's won there four times now, twice in MotoGP, one apiece in Moto3 and Moto2. Um, but uh, I don't think anyone during preseason would have given Rins even a shot. Uh, hope in hell at um, getting on the podium uh, three races into this year never mind winning a race um, so yeah I mean he's uh, he's doing something pretty special I think with that bike and um, maybe proving that me uh, or I have certainly in the past um, undervalued him perhaps Two points Dave uh, firstly an observation on Friday when Takanakagami gave his media debrief to us Alex Rins' teammate of course he seemed kind of anxious I mean he repeated more than once that he wanted to go and look at the data because he couldn't quite understand how Rins was making 
a second a lap better than he was. Um, you know, I think on Saturday he tried to explain that, you know, Rins's, uh, you know, competence on the edge of the tyre, you know, when the bike was lent over, that was really making the difference, making the factor in his competitiveness this weekend. But two things. Firstly, isn't it refreshing to see somebody else so accomplished on the Honda? We haven't seen anyone else really meet anything like Mark Marcus's level with this machine for a number of years. I mean, Cal Crutcher was the last winner, as we saw the graphic on the TV. The second point is, do we treat this a little bit like Franco Morbidelli's resurgence in Argentina? And sadly, Franco kind of defaulted back to that, you know, speed and position outside the top 10 in Cota yesterday. Does Alex Rins then kind of do the same in her F? Uh, that's, I would like to say that's the same question, but it isn't quite the same question. But yeah, I mean, it's, um, yes, it's great to see someone else use the Honda in a different way. What uh, Takanakagami was uh, was explaining was, uh, I mean, he basically said, you know, he rides he rides more Moto Two style, by which he means he's carrying a lot more corner speed. What uh, and you saw that because uh, especially towards the end when Luca Marini was starting to catch uh, um, uh, Alex Rins, what was happening was uh, down the back straight and through uh, uh, sort of the back straight and the front straight. Um, Marini was catching Rins by probably half a second, and then Rins would pull back another half a second in that through in that first sector where you flow through all of those corners. Now he does that because it really suits his style. His style is really good at that kind of flowing track. Uh, we've seen it. Others. He's also fantastic at Mugello, for example, because you know he can carry so much more corner speed than uh, the, the, than other riders. Um, the other thing uh, about him is the big problem of the Honda is there's no grip. I mean, if you ask a Honda rider, what's the problem? Yeah, no grip. And by no grip, they mean that when you open the throttle, the rear spins and you don't get any drive. It just won't go forward. Um, what Rins is really good at is getting drive out of the corner. So because he's carrying more corner speed, even though for the other riders, if they're right on the edge of the tire, if they open the throttle, the thing just wants to come around on them. It, it wants to spin. Um, he is so good with his throttle that he can uh, manage it. And it also, it's interesting that I heard this from a couple of people. And I think um, Neil spoke to Beefy Bourguignon that what he's really good at, he's very subtle at uh, uh, electronics. He's very subtle with his, uh, or he doesn't like very many electronics. He's very subtle with his with his throttle input. He wants to have as much control as possible uh, in the throttle so he can understand what's happening. Um, and when he when you give him that, he's able to really manage the uh, find that balance between drive and uh, spin, where you where you've got just enough spin on the tire to drive the bike forward and really accelerate. And that's where he seems to be going right. I think it's it's really impressive what Rins is doing. When was the last time we saw a rider with his kind of riding style carrying high corner speed, making it work on a Honda? I mean, Jorge Lorenzo had that style disaster with a Honda. I, I Pedrosa had to pick up. Yeah, Pedrosa had to change his style quite considerably to get uh, acclimatized to, to MotoGP. Um, I mean, I can't think of really anyone making the Honda work with, with that kind of style. You look at anyone that's had success in recent years, Crutchlow, Marquez, Pedrosa, um, However, Marquez, the similarity between Marquez and Rins is they're both really, really good 
at the throttle. They both, neither of them want response. I mean, Casey Stoner was the same. Casey Stoner also, like Casey Stoner's big argument with everyone, every sort of uh, electronics engineer he ever rode for was, you know, switch them off. I want less, I want less, I want less. And the electronics engineer would have to say, look, we can give you a little bit more. Um, And because he wanted to be able to use have everything in his hand so he could manage the manage what was happening at the rear tire himself. Rins is the same. Marquez is the same. Uh, I think that th- those are the parallels, and that's what's most interesting. Yeah, and I managed to catch up with uh, Christophe Bourguignon, who is the technical director of LCR Honda, just after the race, and he was really interesting uh, about how Rins has approached the task of getting to grips with the Honda, and also what his impressions were of his strengths at uh, Cota. Uh, so, Christoph, was it clear from the start of working with Alex that you had a supremely confident and gifted uh, rider on your hands? Uh, yes, clearly. The first, even the first time you ride a bike, the way it's a throttle management was something special for us. You know, the way you control the, the throttle, and, and uh, even compared to the rider we work with, you know, and. Uh, but obviously, our bike was not at the level of his ability, you know, and then he was requesting different things on the bike, especially the torque delivery and things like that. And uh, But clearly, I don't know, it's some of the things you feel when you work with somebody and then uh, you feel it was really, the potential was there, but we need to just try to find a way to extract it. But we keep our head down and then we, we just keep the same work you know, good or bad result, you know, yeah. this was good with this team, you know, yeah. When you looked at this riding style with the Suzuki, I mean, I personally didn't think it would match that well with the Honda. Are you, have you been surprised with how quickly he's adapted to the bike? Well, we have to be careful also. He's one race, you know, and right. then we don't want to, you know, of course, win is in this level is something that's really special and to have this ab- ability to do it, he must be really good at his job, you know, because he's a... Uh, the other guy also really good and is a high competition. Of course, when we see the Suzuki, the way the Suzuki, the corner speed and things like that, you just think it will take a long time for them to adapt to. But the funny thing, you know, when he ride in Valencia, he was not uh, about the turn in the handling. He was not that worried about it, you know. Really? He was more focused on traction, re-grip and engine delivery. Yeah. More what he was missing. The fact that he's able to carry so much corner speed, Taka was saying yesterday that's maybe making the difference where him and Joanna maybe trying to stand the bike up on corner exit and uh, make the most of traction, maybe the traction isn't there. Alex is able to carry the speed, that's maybe where he's making the difference. Yes, he carries speed, but looks like with less throttle he's able to extract more from the bike something he requests and we work on you know the way the the third delivery and then uh, and then hrc has been working a lot on dyno and things like that right to to match his request and looks like everybody also even going that way even other rider you know just something different you know when you have somebody else from from another manufacturer they try to to learn from it you know i don't want to say we don't need traction control you always need but you know, the, the time we start spinning, you know, he's managing really well with his hand, you know. Okay. 
You know, we have been struggled. You know, this this is the reality. Until even last week, you know, like, uh, and we have to be really careful. You know, I think uh, Alex was a master this weekend. Yeah. You know, and then uh, probably he made our bike look good. You know, but uh, we still need to work and to try to improve our bike because we are a little bit behind still. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Good to hear from Beefy there, Neil. Um, did he get covered in champagne at all? Because I know, you know, I, I, I struggle to remember when it was. Um, was it um, Bastianini in, in Misano or last year? Or when did you go down and you suddenly swallowed up in the team celebrations? I can't quite remember when that was. Yeah, when was that? I think that was Bastianini's first podium uh, in, what, 21 at Misano? Yeah, I avoided the champagne. You'd be uh, glad to know this time. Uh, hang in the shadows. That's uh, the advice I can give you. Unless there's a beer going on and then, you know, why not? Um, talking more, well, more talking points, I should say, from Kota. And for me, I, you know, it, it looked empty, Dave. I mean, I didn't walk around the stretch of the circuit. I went for a good walk on Saturday. Yesterday, I didn't think it looked particularly busy. But then, you know, if you examine the TV pictures and you look completely around the circuit, there was a fair crowd. I think more than last year. Um, frustratingly, uh, even Dorna communicated this, that the circuit organizers don't like to give out official crowd figures. Um, we don't really know why, uh, and it's something they're hoping to fix in the future. Internal policy, apparently. <laughs> the internal policy is not to release MotoGP attendance figures. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the point was that you know it felt busy in the paddock. Um, you know, Around the track, there was actually more public than we thought. Uh, we saw the presentation on Friday afternoon, Dave, of Dorna's new CCO, uh, Dan Rossomondo, coming to the sport after almost 20 years in the NBA, uh, you know, which is obviously one of the American sports, which you could argue has the most global reach. I mean, it extends a bit further than I think American football or NASCAR or base, certainly baseball. So there are there is potential there. I mean, I asked Carmelo Espeleta in the press conference if this was the first kind of gesture that Dorna were trying to be more global with their approach. And I noticed Carlos Espeleta, his son in front of me, was kind of nodding along, you know, when Carmelo was, was answering the question there. It seems there is a little bit of a culture shift going inside going on inside Dorna at senior management level. And um Dan Rosamondo, when I was on the grid both on Saturday and Sunday, was was running around. I mean, looking incredibly busy trying to check everything out. I'm sure it was a, a bit of a mental whirlwind for him trying to get a handle on what this sport is about on the ground. I mean, he admitted in the press conference he had done his due diligence and his research before taking the role, and he's going to be moving to Madrid uh, where, where he'll be working. But I think it's a positive move, like we said, that they have this specialist coming in. Um, I only hope that he knows he's in a position to augment some real changes in, in the sport. If he kind of doesn't get a grasp on it, then I wonder where MotoGP is going to go. But if he kind of seizes the ball, picks up the ball, to use an American kind of euphemism, um, and, and really runs with this thing, then there could be potential for quotas to get bigger in the years. You know, I mean, we've seen Formula One pack this place out. I mean, I know the organizers there like to put on gigs, concerts, whatever else to flesh out the, you know, the the entertainment program model, which is something that the World Supercross Championship guys actually want to start doing. Not just have a race, but have lots of other activities going on around to generate a swell of public rather than just hardcore race fans. But, um, you know, with the progress Moto America is kind of making, the only thing that makes me sad is there's a lack of an American rider. I mean, we had Cameron Bobier, and I think the sport is a little poorer for his absence because there's nobody else nowhere near his level. Um, just for your sort of two cents worth, Neil, I mean, what was your kind of general feeling of the US Grand Prix and where it stands? Um, yeah, I mean, I thought the, the 
the audience yesterday, although we have no exact figures, looked better than um, it did certainly last year. Last year, you really had the impression that no one was there. Um, this year, I think there was no general admittance or no people were allowed um, to enter in general admittance. Yeah, I mean, uh, they uh, basically, they, they weren't selling general admission tickets, which means, which is basically, uh, you don't have to sit in a grandstand. You had to buy a, a grandstand ticket. It was interesting because um, when I spoke to my, when I found my wife on um, uh, Sunday, uh, Sunday evening, uh, she said, because uh, she and my entire family came over for my father's 80th birthday in 2017. And they, I mean, they loved wandering around the track. The, the track is great. It's great for wandering around. There's so much, Yeah, it's huge. And there's so much going on. It's really enjoyable. Uh, but she said she was surprised at how few people there were on the sort of the grass banks that where, where they'd been sitting. Um, that would explain because it's, you know, it, no general admission. Whereas Cormac, Ryan Mean and our photographer friend was showing photos of the grandstands and the grandstands looked really quite crowded. So it's sort of swings and roundabouts. Were there more or fewer people? Really difficult to tell. Yeah, but it's certainly, Cormac was saying, comparing his photos to 2019, there were more people in the grandstands than back in 2019. Yeah, but again, but again because yeah. there's no general admission. So how do you how do you measure, you know, m maybe the people who were sitting in the grandstands were sitting on the grass? Maybe there's more of a grandstand culture. I mean, I can remember having the tour at the Daytona International Speedway where, you know, the, the seats are all multicolored painted. And it, it, when you stand back, it looks like a big hazy multicolored blur you know and the, the guy the official guy told us it was because on the tv you know from a distant shot it looks busy it looks occupied even if it's only half full and the, the thing seats one hundred and twenty thousand people whatever it is um so there's a there's a real i don't know maybe a tendency over here to make sure on tv it looks busy or it's um you know grandstands is where it's at which where as we know in Mugello, it's completely the opposite you know you pay there if you've got premium buck or an Assen, of course. You know, everyone likes to flock to the to the um, the grand the, the grass banking, and it creates this kind of wonderful sea, a wall of people effect. Yeah, exactly. The, the other thing about uh, Assen keep on building grandstands, and the fans keep on complaining because, uh, like, sitting on the on the on the, on the grass banks is is part of the attraction sort of thing. And indeed, you pay less if you just uh, sit on the grass banking. Well, if you waste your time at a cathedral, that's what you get. If you go to a normal <laughs> racetrack, you'll be fine. Um, yeah, so just one quick word um, after Rosamondo was presented, uh, Neil. Um, any kind of thoughts from that from that press conference? He seemed um, kind of proactive, or you know. Yeah, he definitely. He certainly talked a good game. Um, I think in one of our note shows over the weekend, Dave said the proof will be in the pudding. Um, but certainly in terms of first impressions, you got the impression you got the impression watching that um, he was someone that was pretty driven, um, pretty determined, new. Um, the secrets of, of kind of presenting um, a sporting package, not just the event, but a kind of a, a package surrounding it. One of the things I found interesting was he was saying, I don't really watch basketball, but um, he was saying with the NBA games, you know, that the, the fans that would come to the stadiums about a, th a third of the time they would be in the stadium, they would actually be watching the basketball game. The rest of the time would be some form of entertainment, some kind of activity going on with cameras, lights, dancing, choreography, whatever it is. To keep them entertained. Now, you know this is something that might apply really well to um, a race or a race event in America. I'm not sure in Europe that we have that kind of culture when we go to sporting events where we have to be entertained every five seconds, and there has to be a great deal of variety. Yeah, well, yeah, that's a good point, Dave. It's, it's, it's more of a festival vibe. 
yeah, exactly. To me, the 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 problem is that uh, an NBA game, uh, yeah, all right, you've got what is it, forty minutes of of, of playtime? I don't know exactly. Um, but actually, to interrupt you there, an NFL game is perhaps better for context there because yeah, so you've got sixty minutes. It goes into four hours. Or yeah, exactly. You've got sixty minutes of of pure playing time. Well, the other thing is like the NFL also has the complication of a lot of those um, stops are also there for uh, TV advertising. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, the thing is, like when you go to an NFL game, it is uh, sure it's four hour. You know, it, it's four hours of of, of uh, action in various forms with lots of other th- bits and pieces going on. Um, but also, it's you know, it's just one day. So you go there, uh, beers, um, a barbecue, all the rest of it. Watch the game after it's beers and barbecue, and then you go home. Um, the thing about MotoGP is, it's three days. Um, it's a lot longer or it's a weekend. Uh, it's, uh, it, I mean, the advantage of a one-day sporting adve- uh, event is it's easier to, make, to turn it into a big festival and keep people entertained. People will, will uh, pay that. A, a Grand Prix is a weekend and it's a, it's a more significant uh, investment. I mean, just for starters, you've got to pay for accommodation or figure out accommodation for uh, one way or another. Yeah, I was told by... Um somebody from a team as well that this is the second most expensive grand prix on the calendar for the team so that pretty much says it all from trying to get accommodation in downtown austin um very quick question to wrap up this subject to you both we've all been to laguna seca it's going undergoing renovations i haven't nor have i haven't no outrageous well to completely out you know dismisses my question then you've seen laguna seca right okay so would you prefer to head you know right up there in california northern california or would you prefer to stay in, in kota can I answer first? I would like them to build a decent circuit, a proper circuit somewhere where the neighbours aren't going to bitch and complain about it uh, in Northern California because that part of uh, California, that part of the United States is where there should be a Grand Prix. Uh, there are lots of reasons why Laguna Itseka is not suited to hosting a MotoGP round. Uh, some of the practical is very short. Uh, it's not really a MotoGP circuit. It's a fantastic 250 circuit or a Moto2 circuit, maybe. Uh, also, it's not safe enough. It doesn't have the facilities. They are upgrading it. It's going to be fantastic when it's finished. Um, it's a it's sort of state-owned thing. So, you know, the, the, the business proposition behind it is not really solid enough. Um, there's lots and lots of reasons why not to do it. But there should be, there should be a... Someone needs to build a fantastic racetrack in Northern California somewhere uh, near a large enough town where there's some uh, where there's cheap accommodation. Tacos or surf and turf for you now? Uh, tacos every day of the week. Um, but yeah, literally, quite literally, multiple times. Exactly. Yes, it's been that kind of weekend. Breakfast and evening. Yeah, <laughs> breakfast, lunch. Yeah. Yeah, tacos every day of the week. But I, I agree with Dave. Yeah, uh, I mean, California is the, the kind of perfect spot, and just historically speaking, it's the it's the kind of the hotbed of uh, of American activity from. You know the 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 seventies and eighties wave of Americans that came over, um, or the majority of them that came over, um, but yeah, Laguna just doesn't fit to, to host a MotoGP race. So um, yeah, there's not really anywhere you can think of currently um, in America other than Kota that that can host a MotoGP. Well, on the food subject, we're going to lick some salt and down a shot quickly for a break here on the on the podcast. But we'll be back where we've got an exclusive interview with Lynn Jarvis. Uh, we're going to go into our winners and losers. And we've got your questions, of course. We'll be right back. Renthal Street, Chain and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution 
for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back, everybody. Our last talking point from Cosa Dave um, concerns the M1 and the blue bikes. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, everyone who saw Luke Marini just absolutely motor past uh, Fabio Quartararo would would be very concerned about the horsepower of the Yamaha. Uh, Fabio Quartararo was one of those people who was concerned about the horsepower of the Yamaha. Um, it was... Um, he was very critical of Yamaha through, uh, the, throughout the weekend about you know just not having the horsepower, not having the uh, you know not having the ability to fight. He can fight at some points, but um, once the bikes get past, then then you know that's that's pretty much game over. I think this track um, it, it accentuates the weakest points because if you think back to Argentina and Franco Morbidelli with the Ducatis, he was holding them off. You know they could not pass him just on pure top speed. But that was because the back straight at, at Argentina, you're coming off a, a fast flowing corner. Um, for example, Mugello is the same. There's a few of those places uh, where you can think of tracks in the future where Quattro is going to have tr- trouble. If there's a Ducati anywhere near uh, Fabio Quattro at the hairpin, at the Strubben hairpin in uh, in Assen, he's going to get slaughtered. But um, a- anywhere else, you know, um, uh, Quattraro will be able to will be able to get away. Um, the fact I-, I went back and actually watched the helicopter view of that p- of that pass. Fortunately, you could see the, the pass how it developed, and it looked like uh, it almost looked like um, Marini pressed the nitrous button. Um, but when they just show the clip, but what they don't show you is coming out the corner, and coming out the corner, you can see. Uh, that Quattararo is struggling with wheelie. If you go down and watch the, the Moto Two bikes, there they're really they're just wheeling out of that corner all of the time. Um, and the the, the the Ducati is just planted out of there, and you can see it's out of low gears. It's sitting it's sitting right behind the uh, the Yamaha. Normally, what happens when uh, bikes accelerate out of corner the leading bike no matter what it is the leading bike sort of pulls away a little bit because it's able to start accelerating earlier uh, but the, the 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 ducati is right on the on the mr's tail all the way out of the corner and that is what makes the difference you know that 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 early acceleration is why it's flying past later on down the down the acceleration that 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 pass is happening a lot uh, a lot further along well, on Saturday, um, Fabio was particularly outspoken. I mean, the Yamaha PR was starting to get very nervous and twitchy, I think, as he was speaking to us. Um, I mean, he talked about various subjects from uh, the legitimacy of, of the current M1, how you know he's been with Yamaha for, what, four years now, and he hasn't had any significant upgrades in the bike. Of course, there have been incremental gains. Um, he said that the bike's missing a little bit of everything everywhere. I mean, that was what he was mentioned on Friday. Um, but then on Saturday, I think he lamented especially Yamaha's um, unfortunate position of only having two riders on the grid. And he hinted towards maybe a change of mentality or working culture inside the team, uh, which was something that Mark Marquez was pushing for in HRC, as we know so well, um, when he came for the critical meeting in, in Red Bull Ring last year. So, um, you know, with all these subjects floating up and we talk, talked about Top Rack um, and the speculation about him being his teammate for next year. I mean, Neil and I went to find Lynn Jarvis in the paddock after the race yesterday and we thought we'd throw a couple of these subjects at him. And um, Lynn, you know, made time for us. So thanks to him for that. Uh, here is what he had to say. 
Lynn, thanks ever so much for joining us post-race here at Cotta. Um, first podium finish of the season, Fabio Quartararo. Uh, first of all, your emotions, relief, uh, happiness, especially considering it's an important event for the title sponsor. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you hit it uh, spot on. Um, relief, because always to get the first podium, you know, it's not been an easy start to the season. Um, ups and downs, you know, Frankie did well to be fourth in, um, in Argentina. But to get the first podium is always uh, very meaningful. Um, good to see Fabio there. You know, this is as much a mental game as anything else. So to give him the confidence as, as we go forward into the next section of the championship, you know, the European um, tour, should we say, is really good. And also, uh, yeah, it's a kind of a double satisfaction here. We have Monster Energy here. We have, uh, you know, the, the bosses here and a big group of people, all the top management, at the Red Bull Grand Prix. And um, I think the podium was a lockout for Monster. So they're all very happy. We are happy. And probably what we still consider our main competitor uh, failed to score points today. So that gave us an opportunity to catch up. So it really, I mean, I can't say it could, couldn't have been better because it could have been because we could have been first or second. But podium is really important. Then how do you see this Grand Prix? It's the second longest track on the calendar. There's 20 corners, uh, only 13 finishes today. It's seen quite a lot of people had, you know, trouble, with, particularly with front tire pressures. Um, from your position in the box, watching things unfold, what was your observations or your feelings? Yeah, I think it's super easy to make a mistake. We saw not only in the race many crashes, but also in the in the previous days, we saw so many guys go down. I think Alex Marquez went down four times in the weekend. So it's a very, very tricky track. And if you go offline, then you can easily make a mistake. If you just you just try a little bit extra lean angle because you want to try something different, like Fabio did yesterday, you can lose it. So it's super easy to make a mistake here. Um, so hence the relief factor as well to bring home both guys. You know, Frankie made a mistake this morning, but that was a completely different story. Uh, but to bring home both boys, um, yeah, is... is, is is important, but I think it's a good track. You know, I think it's a challenging track, uh, difficult to learn if, uh, for the for the rookies and for new people. And you know, the bump the bumps here can easily upset you as well. So, um, but I think it's really good that we come to America, and this is a very good facility in general. And considering the preseason approach of Yamaha, bringing lots of new things for both Fabio and Franco to test. New engine, new aero, new chassis. Was it always going to take a little bit of time to find your kind of peak level of competition? Were you expecting a start of the season, which maybe Fabio built up himself? Well, we know the level of the opposition. I would say that's the important point. If you look, uh, you know, last year was pretty clear in the second half of the season, the strength of the Ducatis above all and also the Aprilias are very very good so we had no misconceptions about the level of the competition that we were going to be facing um, in the pre-season testing in Portimao finally we decided not to use many of the things that we had developed for this year um, because maybe there would be some benefits but we were not sure not clear and Fabio was lacking some feeling and confidence with the bike and that would have been dangerous to start the season because you only get two aero packages th throughout the year, for instance. So, you know, you need to select well. And, um, and we chose to use what we know and what he felt comfortable with. And I think that's so important. Again, maybe you can gain here or there some extra tenths. But if, you, if the rider is not comfortable and confident and if the rider can't, can't believe and feel that that bike is his, 
it's a wrong decision. So I think at the end of the day, it was a right decision. Um, I wish we had more to use, though. I wish, I wish we, we had more uh, things that could be helpful. Um, Lynn, for all his undoubted ability, is it worth reminding people that Fabio, you know, this is just his fourth, you know, season in the Premier Class. He's still a young rider, you know, he's still making his journey, so to speak. To, to he's not at his peak. I would think you would agree. And is that also, you know, like I said, worth reminding people when it comes to the development of the bike and, and trying to push Yamaha forward? Um, I don't see it really relevant for the development of the bike. I think. Um, as you said, anyway, he's got a long career ahead of him. He's extremely fast. He's a super nice guy in the box, off the circuit. You know, he's, um, he's almost uh, everything you could wish for in a rider. And I think it's up to us to deliver him um, a stronger pa package in the future so that he can go on to win the multiple world champions that I believe, and championships that I believe he will. Um, you know, last year, obviously, we couldn't use the engine that we wanted to bring us up to speed. This year we could eventually use that, so we've definitely closed the gap. You could see that today, but also if you saw the pass from uh, Marini on uh, Fabio at a certain moment in the race, huh, then you can see that there's still work to be done. So we're fully aware of that, and it's our duty to to go on and um, deliver him what he needs. And you know he's under contract with us till the end of next year, um, but we would like to retain him much more. And next year's package needs to be really good. In the past, we've maybe seen Fabio, he likes to be settled in terms of setup and maybe doesn't vary too much from race to race. He's been saying this year it's a bit of a struggle because he hasn't found his base setting just yet. How has it been to kind of manage him in this kind of, uh, in this moment when he hasn't got a settled setting and um, he's maybe not as content as he, he normally is? He's a lot more mature now than he was, uh, I would say... A year and a half or a year ago you know so he already he understands now that okay maybe he can be frustrated but he he doesn't get angry as such so frankly it's not really a problem to he's quite optimistic guy even going into today he was optimistic about the chances that he could do something in the race if he got a good start and um and so he's definitely maturing as a person as a rider as an athlete and um so no, it's not really been a problem, honestly. I think, Lim, one big question, you know, people or fans may have, you know, regarding Yamaha and their status in MotoGP, of course, is that feeling that you're slightly outgunned. Um, you know, when it comes to matters off the track, are you sort of knee deep in trying to find solutions to extend Yamaha's footprint in this paddock, you know, get back to four riders? Is that a, a priority for you and senior management? It's a desire. Um I would say the priority number one is to is to win this year, to do everything we can to win this year and to try to, you know, last year we were, at the end of the day, we were second in the championship, the year before we won the championship, so we're not out of the game, far from it. Um, we'd rather have four bikes on the grid, but that needs to be done at the right moment. And um, maybe 2024 could be too early, that's my feeling. So never say never, because you never know what's going to happen. But um, I think it's more likely that we're going to need a little bit more time before we can do that. But that's when we should be, should we say, really back to normal strength. 
And uh, we're missing that a little bit, having not, uh, you know, we only have data from one or two, you know, one or two riders, depending upon the performance of the second rider. But if you've got more, you have more data to make the important choices throughout race weekend. And that's, I mean, Ducati really have uh, two advantages. One is their bike is very good. It's the reference bike. And secondly, they have a, an abundance of data and they can try out different things with different teams. And they have many fast riders as well. So it's not easy. To, to beat them and uh, but that doesn't say it, it's impossible Do you feel then there's still a lot more to come from this year's package? Um, Fabio was saying there's maybe one or two things expected to come to the Reth test um, but we know with the new engine obviously um, it's a lot more potential there um, do you expect this kind of progression to keep going? We have certain things that we can still bring and that we're working on hard and I think definitely we'll be able to improve the package throughout the season in parallel, we're working now very hard on next year's package. So we'll be testing that along the way. But later in the year, there'll be two important tests. Um, and so, yeah, we'll do what we can and with the plans that we already have. I mean, you know, by now, because we're already in the middle of April, so we know what could come or won't come for this year. But what's really important is to make sure that next year is a big step forward. Just um, yesterday, Fabio was saying that, um, and he said this in Port Portimao as well, it's quite difficult for him to run the kind of Yamaha lines when he's in a group of riders. You know, he needs clean track to be able to operate at this kind of best. Some people are saying that maybe the, the days for inline fours in MotoGP are, are numbered considering the strength of the, the V4s. I mean, is this something that you, would you disagree with that? Or do you think that Yamaha needs to stick with the philosophy of, of what it knows or... Um, what are your thoughts on that matter? I think that at this moment to develop a V4 is, um, is not practical right now. Because if you want to develop one right now, you're going to probably take at least two years to get it right. All of our competitors have all the experience in the world running with V4 four-strokes. So if we want to start now, I think it's... Um, yeah, it's, it's a big project. And remember that the rules and regulations will change in 27. So, we're already in 23 at the moment, so we could do, but I think it's more likely that we might work on new solutions once the regulations become clear for the future. That's my honest opinion, but I'm not an engineer, so I can, only, I can easily escape from such questions because I'm not an engineer. Lynn, lastly, um, quite in a high-profile way, Mark last year came to the Red Bull ring, he had a, you know, kind of critical meetings of HRC wanted to probe them to experiment with a new working culture um, yesterday Fabio was talking to us and he kind of hinted at the same thing he wondered if there was a possibility to change the way or the urgency perhaps in which Yamaha go racing that was the implied suggestion um, just from your vast knowledge you know working with the Japanese working with Yamaha um, you know is this something where European manufacturers are suddenly starting to get more of a stronghold because there are more European brands in this paddock and I don't know, is it something that's coming more into focus, perhaps? Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, we've, we've seen that. I mean, now there's only six uh, Japanese bikes on the grid um, and 16 uh, non-Japanese, which is probably exactly the opposite of what it was, uh, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. So that's, that's a clear trend and that's a reality. I think the Europeans are more aggressive. Um, it's easier for them to test on the circuits and the easier time from factory to, to test track. So that's definitely something that's a disadvantage in the Japanese. But I think mainly it's um, 
the culture um, is very, very different and Japanese brands tend to be more cautious, more conservative, avoid error is um, almost as important as making gain is avoiding error. Um, so we are in that process of change. Clearly, we recognized already last year when we had this, uh, this problem that we couldn't use the motor. So the project with Marmarini is one of the projects. We have some other projects that are ongoing. We need to work on aerodynamics. We need to, you know, there are many, many things. But bear in mind that we do work with a lot of Europeans uh, as well, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, whether it be wheels and brakes, suspension and everything else. So we're not, you know, we're not exclusively working only developing things in Japan. In, in, in YMR in Italy, we have many European engineers working there now, which five years ago we didn't. And now we have a whole group of people. And that the key for us is going to be to, to have the integration between Europe and Japan working seamlessly together with trust, with confidence, with a single goal. And that's what we need to have, not them and us type of thing, you know. And, um, and I think the Europeans are very aggressive and uh, Gigi has been the one that's led this trend, I think. And Aprilia have done impressive work in the last couple of years. KTM, obviously, since they come in MotoGP, they haven't yet reached their potential. And they're spending a lot of money on it as well. And a lot of changes they're making every, every year. Um, so it's not easy. It's really not easy to be competitive. Uh, um, but you see, it's not difficult to be competitive. It's not easy to win, to be dominant. And we have to... At the moment, we're in a situation where we need to catch up. But what we really need to be is in a situation where we're looking where we can gain advantage. So we're a little bit behind. Lynn, thanks ever so much for your time and we'll see you in Jerez. Yeah, you're very welcome. As we mentioned, thanks there to Lynn Jarvis for speaking to us. We hope to get more people um, on the podcast, particularly after races on, on Sunday, Dave, uh, and on Saturday, of course, after the sprints. And we'll be putting them into our notes show. If you haven't already listened to any of those, we do special programs on Patreon where we bring feedback, insights, opinions right after the action at the races themselves. So come and join us on the Patreon platform. But um, yeah, it was good to speak to Lynn, uh, Dave. He, uh, yeah, exactly. And he uh, he uh, sort of reiterated the points that I made on the note show on Saturday, which is that there's no point in Yamaha building a V4 because if they build a V4, uh, by the time it's competitive, the rules will change uh, and um, uh, and it will be all over again. You know, they've built this this bike for this rule package. They'd have to completely redesign it if they if they try to copy uh, copy Ducati and build a V4. The rules might change. Who knows what's going to happen in 2022? Neil, who is your winner from the Grand Prix? Well, it's a man that we haven't spoken about so far, but he did finish second in the feature race, uh, Luca Marini. I think uh, had a really strong weekend. Um, he uh, qualified well in third. Um, he got caught up by the bumps um, at turn one, entering uh, in the first lap of the sprint, and I think he ended way back in 14th or something at the end of the lap, 13th or 14th. Managed to fight his way through to a decent finish, um, and then he was pretty controlled on uh, Sunday. Um, yeah, there was a moment when it looked as though he might be capable of chasing Rins down, but uh, in the end, um, you know, he got a second place, his first full podium. I mean, he had a sprint podium in Argentina, um, but he had uh, first full podium here. Um, and uh, I thought it was a, a decent response to what has happened this year. You know, Marini had a great preseason, looked super settled, was fastest, I think, in Valencia, fastest in Sepang, um, but then had a rubbish start to the season at Portimao was 
comfortably outshone by his teammate in Argentina, and uh, you felt that he needed to, to kind of muster up a response. He did do that. Um, you know, second place was was really good from him. Um, so yeah, I think uh, Marini deserves a bit of praise. Yeah, and also it's one of those things like the first podium, first win. That is usually it, it unlocks something in a row. So yeah, agree. Looking forward to seeing what he, what he can do. Who is your victor, Dave? My victor was the victor, um, Alex Rins, just because that was a stunning ride. It was absolutely fantastic. He was superb on Saturday. He was superb on Sunday. Um, that bike isn't as good as the Ducatis by a long, long way. Um, to be able to do that, also to be able to, because he also said, you know, after um, after Peko crashed out, that you know there was a second and a half where he was like quite worried almost you know like you know almost lost his concentration uh but he kept it all the way to the end i think uh, lucio Cecchinello was having uh, kittens towards the end um yeah uh, completely deserved and he's um uh, he's such a um he's such an odd chap but in a nice way um uh, he and he's just that bike isn't what he was expecting. You know, he was expecting a more competitive bike, but he hasn't sort of, you know, complained about it or anything. He's just gone. Uh, he's riding it. He's accepted for what it is and he's trying to get everything out of it. So, yeah, fair play. Well, the next round of Jerez used to be very much a Honda track with Mark and Danny Pedrosa taking wins in recent years. It kind of drifted towards being a Yamaha circuit with Jorge Lorenzo and Valentino Rossi. Uh, Rossi's last win, maybe, there? Awesome. Yeah. The the answer to Rossi's X, X win is, Always awesome. <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, and then, of course, Ducati in the last two years of Jack Miller and Peko Bagnaia. But um, my winner uh, was uh, Marco Bezzecchi. Actually, I kind of wanted to have a nod for Alessia Spargo in both categories, winner and loser, because, I mean, uh, he started out the Grand Prix by saying to us that he didn't really like, he was being as polite as possible when he said he doesn't like Cotter at all. Um, he had a fantastic result in the sprint, and then it all ended quite early on, on the main race yesterday. Through no fault of his own. Yes. Uh, so, you know, contender there for, for both categories for Alesh. But I think Marco Bezzecchi, like we mentioned, he's still leading the championship. He's had results of third, a win, and now six. So, I mean, you can he didn't look overly over the moon with sixth place yesterday. But leading the championship by 11 points, um, c- can he be considered a serious title contender? Or I know that he's afraid of Jerez test. I know that he's afraid that when Ducati might come up with something to help Pecco with his stability issue or, you know, Enea Bastini still has to come back into the fold. Although after three rounds, can we really consider him a, a title prospect now? 666 points still to go. There's a lot of points. But I, I refuse to believe that Ducati are not going to help Bezeki if he's in a position where he's right at the top of the championship when we get into the, the, the sticky part of the season. Yeah, when we talk about championship, what something I say all the time, which is you win championships on your bad days. This was a bad day for Bezeki. Bezeki was not looking particularly happy. Comes home with sixth. That's a lot of points and extends his championship lead. Yeah, and if Banyai keeps throwing it at the scenery, then uh, yeah, he is going to be a title contender because, um, you know, there's not, I, I don't see anyone else currently whether it's Marquez, whether it's Quattararo, Bastianini, obviously still coming back from injury. I mean, I don't see anyone else stepping up and, and, and kind of taking the fight to Banyaya currently, other than Bezeki. So, yeah. It's with a little bit of a heavy heart that my loser from the Red Bull Grand Prix of the Americas, I'm nominating Franco Morbidelli. Um, his debriefs were very, again, Zen-like. Um, you know, I mean, there's this repetition there, talk of energy, talk of... I don't know. I'm starting to sound like him now. Um, yeah, you know, he, was, he was reaching. He was he was yes. reaching for for the smallest little glimmer of hope in everything. 
yeah it, it kind of and as as the weekend went on you could see the sort of the, the happiness His sort of soul dying. slowly <laughs> slowly side away um you know we didn't see the same Franco that we saw from Argentina as we suspected we would because such of the the difference in the nature of the circuits but I, I didn't think we saw the the Franco that we saw in Portimao either so it, like it was there was progress but it was more normal progress than than Portimao and this has never been a, I know he won the Moto2 race here in 2017 but he's never been great here in MotoGP I think Jerez is going to be a truer test of whether Franco is, is kind of back per se because he's had a great couple of results there in MotoGP he was front row in 2019 I think podium there in 21 so uh, yeah I think we should reserve judgment Dave, who is your abject performer from the Grand Prix? Well, my abject performer was an abject performer through no, not not necessarily through any real form uh, fault of his own. Was uh, Alex Marquez? Um, he said the first couple of races, Portimao and Argentina didn't feel particularly great, but had some really good results. He came here, he was feeling fantastic, he was really quick, um, and he walked away with zero points. Uh, he was obviously he was taken out by uh, Jorge Martin in the uh, in the main race on Sunday. Um, Does Martin get a penalty? Uh, no, he won't get. No, he won't get a penalty for the same reason that Marini didn't get a, pay, a penalty on on uh, uh, on Bastianini in in Portimao. Should they? I don't. I don't think. Like, I mean, it was. It's the opening lap. The front tires aren't up to temperature. It's a really tricky circuit. Um, everyone is jockeying for position because no one wants to be behind going onto the back straight. There's the, the there's you need to be at the front. So everyone is doing everything. Martini's offline. He is. Um, but then Dave, why does Mark Marquez get a, a dodgy secretary's letter? Because uh, Mark Marquez, um, for a start, it was a couple of laps later. And secondly, because Mark Marquez was uh, never really... I mean, I thought Mark Marquez, the Marquez penalty was a bit harsh. Um, uh, he was trying to make everything up on the brakes. He knew like all he had was the brakes. The only thing that worked for him was the brakes. And so he tried to like push as hard as possible. He didn't need to make that that particular mistake. Martin, it was a small mistake. He, he gets a bit offline. He gets on the dirt, loses the front, wipes uh, uh, Alex Marquez out. Whereas Mark Marquez was um, a, a deliberate strategy of breaking late, uh, locks the front, loses it. Yeah, Mark was a place behind Oliveira. Like he was way behind him on track. Martin was ahead of Marquez, crashed and, you know, Marquez just had the, the misfortune of being yeah. just behind him. Yeah, got taken out. Yeah, wrong, wrong, uh, wrong place, wrong time for, uh, for Alex Marquez. there's also a little bit of past uh, endeavours coming into play as well. You know, you, I know Marquez himself in his debut said there is going to be a scaling system for punishments, but then also you'd have to think that Marquez also, you know, I mean, every rider's, yeah, he's got previous. Um, but, you know, every rider's had their moments when they've scuppered somebody out. Jack Miller, John Mir, I mean... You know. Yeah, because I, I think Jorge Martin was recently just criticising Alex Marquez for um, uh, uh, for, for, his, uh, for his riding. And then, but it's just, it, it, this was racing incident, you know, it was, he made a mistake, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a dangerous, risky mistake. It was, a, it was a mistake with consequences. Alex Marcus is perennially underrated and he's kind of staying that way at the moment, but there's going to be some, we feel like there's going to be some good stuff coming from him. Yeah, it. I mean, like I, I, I would be shocked if Mark, if uh, Alex does not win a, win, win a race this, uh, this year. Uh, Neil, who is your candidate of misery? Uh, I'm going to say Maverick Vinales, uh, Ad. Um, I mean, it was a, a decent 
recovery ride from him. He finished fourth. He got some good points, but this was a race that maybe he should have won or maybe he should have finished at least second. Certainly his rhythm was good enough, I think, for for second position. But um, those age-old feelings of of Maverick were were very much on show. Uh, Poor start in the sprint, nowhere on the first lap, recovered, laid on, set his personal best lap, I think, on the penultimate lap, which was faster than Banyaya at the time. Um, And then the same thing happened in the the feature race. Um, Poor start. Blamed the clutch settings. Um, said they didn't change anything with the clutch settings from Saturday, even though he had an absolutely miserable time off the line, which I found very strange. Why would you not? Why would you not try and alter it or it, change it? Because you get very, um, especially from Saturday to Sunday, you've got one chance to try the um, uh, to try the new setting. You've got you know one practice start basically. Um, the, 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 Starts are finickety. These things do not want to get off the line. So it is it is a significant change. It's the sort of thing that you want to try sort of several times. You might change from Friday to Saturday, but you wouldn't change from Saturday to Sunday. It's getting to the point where it's time for him to start delivering um, on the potential that he clearly has. Um, and yeah, he just shot himself in the foot um, once again. So uh, yeah, Maverick. Thank you for being a flag waver for my fantasy team, Neil, because I cannot believe you brought up Maverick Mignanis. I slotted him into the team in the last 10 minutes before Q, Q1, you know, the last possible moment to do it, and it just let me down again. And uh, I was quite disappointed as well that Brad Binder, um, you know, slid out of action because he's usually my rock right at the, uh, the heart of my fantasy team. And uh, bitter hey, disappointment. Your, your two gold riders could have taken each or one another right in the feature race like mine did. Martin and Alex Marquez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, best we don't tell the riders that we're selecting them for our teams because they'll probably run a mile and never speak to us again. Um, just to round up things here on the show, we've got some questions from you guys. So thanks ever so much for getting in contact with us. First up, um, I'm going to make uh, mince meat of this. Uh, Gurgly Demeter, Dave, asked us about tyre pressures. Um, when will they be enforced? When will there be some sort of um, hard stamp on this? Jerez, uh, I think it is the answer, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. There will be a meeting after the Jerez race um, uh, as to how it's gone so far, whether they will actually enforce these as strictly as they've uh, done so. It's too early to say. There's been... Um, Sort of a bit was a bit of backwards forwards. It was literally not a not an issue at all at um, uh, at Cota, precisely because of this uh, because the weather the weather change. So there's not enough data. We will know much more after Jerez. Uh, Racing Armchair contacted us and asked about Ducati and the Martin takeout. Neil, do you think they should have some sort of uh I don't know, um, investigation into that or any kind of penalties? No, um, I think, as Dave said uh, earlier, I think it was a racing incident. It would be different if they were both going for the victory on the last lap and Martin tried something ludicrous um, to overtake Alex and took them both out. Then I think it's the Jacati would be justified in sitting them both down and having a word or sitting with, down with one of them. But it was the first lap, they were jockeying for position. Martin made a mistake and Alex Marquez was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. So, no, I don't think it's necessary. Uh, Dave Alex Whitworth contacted us and said um, Tony Arbolino um, we mentioned a little bit in the show but his potential route because I mean he's not one of the VR46 flocks for an Italian Um, perspective on him I mean uh, as Neil said earlier uh, it's going to depend on what Fabio Fabio Di Giannantonio does if Grassini think that uh, Arbolino has got more uh, potential than, uh, than Digia then he would be a good shout, and I think he'd be a really good fit in that team as well. But um, that's pretty much his own his only chance. Perhaps 
the RNF team, depending on what uh, what happens with Raul Fernandez. Fernandez again suffered issues with his ride height device, the same as Alasius Bargaro. Um, so it, it's still a little bit early to say. So far, you know, Raul hasn't set the world on fire, but he is uh, making progress. He says. Uh, so you know we'll have to wait and see, but there's not not a great deal of not very many open seats next year. Um, Evan um, Van der Volk, as well as late start Yvonne. racing, Ivan, beg your pardon, um, as well as late start racing, got in contact and asked us about Moto Two and Moto Three classes. Um, that's something we really want to tackle in next week's show, just before uh, Hareth. Um, so we'll we'll get around to those. We promise, guys. In the meantime, please uh, send us any more inquiries you'd like us to tackle on Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter, as well as Patreon, like we mentioned. Uh, we will be back to chew over the the preview for for round four and the Grand Premio. Dave, what was the guru something? Uh, yeah, uh, Griffin. Griffin. Moto G- yes, Griffin MotoGP guru or MotoGP guru Griffin, something like right, that. that. That's your slot of the podcast for next week. I'm already <laughs> signing you up. Um, if it involves payment, then I'm prepared to go to a large quantity. I'm warning you now. Um, thanks ever so much to Renthal Street and, of course, KTM. Um, you know, either in Gas Gas or Husqvarna uh, guises for backing the podcast. Guys, it's been fantastic to uh, talk with you and share the weekend, Neil. And we didn't see a cockroach during the filming of this uh, of this podcast. So, uh, I mean, we are all the winners, I feel. I've been on tenterhooks ever since you've said that, looking around <laughs> this kitchen, to be honest. So, um, they're just, they're just, they're... I hope they're not running over my shoulder as we speak now. <laughs> You checked your pants, Steve. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so far, so far, so far, it's safe. Yeah, but I always like to say about um uh, about prawns that they're the cockroaches of the sea. So I have a much more affectionate uh, relationship. With what cockroaches. an image! That's just Adam's uh, hand on your leg, not uh, not a cockroach. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just usual. It's nice, you know. In Zoom, I get quite lonely when I'm sitting next to beside Dave now. So uh, thanks again, and thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>